So every year, uh, universities across our country uh, graduate engineering students that have completed four to five years of study in various disciplines, whether it, you might have mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, chemical engineers, civil engineers, structural engineers, so on and so forth. And usually when you get near the end of their, their time, at least as an undergrad, uh, last couple semesters, there will be a senior design uh, phase there, or a class even, or a lab uh, class, where they have to take on some project as a group that uh, they usually get some options to choose from, and maybe it's something that particularly interests a group, and so they go down that road. It's also not uncommon to have local businesses or regional businesses uh, sponsor those those groups. Perhaps that's a business that you know their particular line of work they want to work with some students and maybe give them some guidance, and they could do something related to their area of, of actual business. And we actually, the company that I work for, we've, we've done this before as well, where we will take, and we're, we're in the audio electronics realm, and so we will go, and we've worked with local university here down the road, and we'll say, well, here's a project that might work well for these, for these graduating seniors, and we'll put a little write-up, and that write-up will get posted, and then the get, folks can sort of select if they want to make a group and actually take this particular idea on. Uh, and so I've been involved in that, and it's actually been a lot of fun to work with these students. But I have to be honest, back when it started three or four years ago, uh, I had to basically recalibrate my thinking because I went into it, you know, I'm thinking, these kids are seniors, they're graduating, they got their degree almost done, done. they got it all together, they're ready to roll. And so you go into it, and you, you, you lay before them what you want them to do, and I began to realize, I think I've got my expectations a little too high here. You know, it, and I, you know, I've done electrical engineering for 23 years, and I don't say it with any arrogance. It's just that when you have 23 years of experience, and then you're working with someone that started out with zero, you've got to recalibrate and think, okay, how am I going to talk to these folks? How am I going to change maybe the scope of work to better fit what they're after, or what, where, they're, where they're aligned and their level of, of understanding is? And so I had to do that, and I had to change the, my, my, my words and my attitudes as I worked with them. But it's actually been a lot of fun, because you're basically coming along uh, a young man or woman and helping them learn some things, hopefully giving them some good advice and, and getting them in a, you know, heading in a good direction. So it's been a neat thing to do. Now, you may also be wondering, well, what does that have to do with, with Kevin and, and my art, this goal of talking about, you know, unity and, and, and as a body or the price we pay for unity. And I think as we, as we open up this chapter we're going to look at in the Bible, I hope you'll begin to see a little connection there. Uh, and maybe we'll come back to it here a little bit later. But um, as we open this particular section of the Bible I think it gives us some great illustrations and guidance into unity uh, amongst us as believers. And I want to look at a section from Paul's epistle or letter to the Roman church. Um, now, when we open up this particular letter, I think it behooves us to set some background here because the context is always critical when we study Scripture to know where we are, what's been, been talked about thus far, and what is the subject matter here. Um, now, 
the overall topic of the book of Romans is actually the gospel. But it's not just the short form gospel, it's the detailed explanation of the gospel. Paul had already in other places given the short form of the gospel, such as 1 Corinthians 15 in just two verses. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on and that by believing in him we might be saved. And so that you would see clearly is the gospel sort of in a nutshell, right? The just straight to the point. But Paul wants to paint a much deeper and bigger picture that for the church there in Rome and the Gentile capital of the world, um, and even for us today, that we may know the depths of this, this gospel a little bit deeper than just that, that short form. He wanted to answer some big picture questions, things like, why was salvation needed? What is the state of natural man? How did we end up in this predicament or situation that we found, find ourselves as natural man? How did Jesus' work save us and justify us before the Father? What about sin and our flesh after we're saved? Uh, what is our standing with the Lord after salvation? What about Israel? Pretty good question. If you've read the Old Testament, and all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a second, what about Israel? What about the law? He's going to get into that. Um, how do we deal with the flesh now as we walk forward as new creatures? And then a big one, how does the Lord's sovereign choice function in regards to salvation? These are all big-time questions, and he goes into great depth into all these things, and he pours into it for 11 chapters at the beginning of Romans, at the, the whole first you know, majority section of it. And as he does it, he follows his normal form that Paul a lot of times wrote his epistles, which was, I'm going to present the doctrinal truths, and then I'm going to present the application of what that then means, how it should impact the way we live our lives. And he did that in this case with Romans. Now, it, during the first 11 chapters, it paints this incredible picture answering many of the questions that I just put before you. But it gives us this view and, and allows us to believe these incredible realities. Things like, Christ died for my sins. I am in Christ. I died with him. I've been raised with him to new life. I am changed. I'm a new creation. A saint, perfectly righteous in God's eyes. I can live different now. And I'm learning to live that way and walk according to his spirit. I believe that he chose me, called me, justified me, inescapably made me his son, and firmly will hold me and finish what he has started via his indwelling spirit. Incredible, incredible truths that we can hold on to and believe that Paul spent 11 chapters to establish. And then you get to chapter 12, and it starts off, the first word is therefore, and that is a huge therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to say, well, how far back is the there? You know, it's obviously pointing to something that he's just said. Many scholars believe the therefore of 12.1 is saying, in light of everything that I've just told you, all these truths, incredible realities that, that he paints in these doctrinal truths through the first 11 chapters, in light of all of that, how now do we, as people who have experienced this mercy, 
who have been made new, how do we now live a life of faith? And that is where he heads with these last chapters in Romans. In chapter 12, he starts off with how to truly love one another quite opposite the way, to a way that a natural man would. And it's a very challenging chapter. And then he goes into the depths of how to submit to governing authorities, a chapter very applicable for our day, and it's always been to know that God has established all authorities. There's none other under heaven that hasn't been established by him, and therefore we submit to these authorities, not something that our natural man just wants to do. Submission is tough. Then he goes on and talks about how we are to love our fellow believers, even love them and walk with them when they have differences of conviction in their conscience regarding various matters that we'll look at today. And that's where you get to Romans 14 and 15. And it's these latter two chapters that I want to try to dive into here today uh, and talk briefly through. And you, hopefully you know, your mind's going, briefly, Joel, remember, briefly. We're just doing this briefly. It's not in depth. So, and that's, that's right. So I don't, I'm not meaning to go into this every word for word, verse for verse per se. I'm trying to just give us some overarching things that we can gather from it. So let's open to Romans 14.1. Paul says in 14.1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Now, Paul starts out this section with a call to accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for purposes of passing judgment on his or her opinions. He then follows that by giving us two examples that sort of help clue us in to what he's talking about here uh, with these examples. Uh, Both of these examples point to matters, if you look at it, matters of personal liberty. Uh, With the first example, one brother walks in a strong position of liberty regarding the fact that they, food, they can eat all things. They're open and enabled and willing to eat all things. While the other brother is convicted of a bit more limited view, less liberty, only eating specifically vegetables. Uh, In the second example, one brother walks in a strong position of liberty regarding all days alike. No one day above another. But then you have another uh, who is convicted of a more limited view, holding one day above another. Now, Paul calls these convictions in ourselves opinions in verse 1. That Greek word involves the thinking of a man deliberating within himself 
or it could be also uh, defined as the inward reasoning of a person or a man. So these are things inside that we, as we take things in and we're, we're beginning to arrive at decisions and opinions on various matters. Um, now, I want to pause real quickly, though, here to note something. This particular section of Scripture is not dealing with how we handle foundational doctrinal differences, okay? Doctrines such as justification by faith or the inerrancy of Scripture. That's not what Paul's talking about here. With regards to key doctrines like that, Paul says, look, we, he had taught a whole different thing. You, you correct you teach on these things. You reprove. And even in Galatians 2, you may have to even confront like he did to Peter. Do you remember Galatians 2 when he stood up directly confronting Peter on an issue? There are times that you do that. And that's, I want to make it clear here that this particular section is dealing with matters of personal liberties, secondary or even you could even say tertiary issues, many of which are external, what we eat, what we drink, whether we celebrate a certain holiday, so on or so forth. That's what's in view here, matters of the conscience around these things. Now, moving on, you might think as I read that, it sounded a little bit rude that Paul would say there's a stronger and a weaker, and we don't like to hear weak. I mean, the minute you say someone's weak, that's immediately like a negative light. That's just a negative uh, but I don't think Paul really is trying to condemn or paint a negative picture towards any of these folks. He's wanting to realize, he wants us to realize that he deeply cares, and therefore we should deeply care for all of our brothers and sisters, uh, whether they are strong in faith, walking in great liberty, or those who are weaker in their faith, walking with less liberty, a little bit more restricted. Think of it this way. If we were to think of as a young believer, perhaps you, if you look at a young believer, maybe they haven't read or learned various passages about some of these things with eating, such as Genesis 9-3, when God says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Or if we were ever to fast forward to Mark where Jesus speaks and he says, do you not understand? that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him. And then he goes, and then Mark records, thus he declared all foods clean. Or maybe the story of Peter, where the sheet came down. There were all these animals and, and creatures, and, and the Lord speaks out to him, says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 I've never eaten anything unclean. And then you hear this other voice this voice speaks up in 1015. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. But as a new believer, you may not have read all these things. You may not know these things. And you're living with, you, you just don't understand that yet. That could be one of the, one, one situation that could lead to a, a, an issue where the, someone's in a weaker position. Or think of a believer that perhaps has come out of a strong legalistic background. Someone that maybe has been taught for 20 years. So very strongly against certain foods or drinks or clothing styles or fill in the blank, or, you know, holidays or days of the week to, to recognize. Uh, that can be a, a, a tricky thing, right? Because they've been taught a lot of things about that. Um, so we bear with that. 
or consider a believer in Paul's day. You've got to put yourself in that day. You've got a lot of Judaizers. You may have had people, like I just mentioned, that have come out of Judaism. Uh, and they're there actually teaching that, oh, no, 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 you still need to only eat the clean, and it's, that, that pork, it's unclean, and you got to recognize this day above all the other days, and this new moon, and this Sabbath, and so on and so forth, and that's the, that's the climate of that day, and that is a position that is a reality. Even today, we still have this situation. So Paul calls those brothers weak, not to be negative towards them, but to simply acknowledge a reality that exists in God's kingdom. There are people that have those convictions in their, in, regarding their personal liberties in external matters, and Paul's going to deal with it head on in this chapter. And the way he's going to say it is, look, you're not here to try to change that. You come alongside, and he'll talk about what to do about it. So what does he say? How do you handle a situation like that where we have differences of opinion or on these issues? And what's cool is he starts out and he goes immediately to our hearts and our attitudes towards one another. And I think this is, this is the core. What do you do with your own heart, your own mind, when dealing with these, these differences, when you see differences arise like this on these issues? The first thing he says is that we should be accepting of one another. Accept this one that would be weaker in the faith. To accept carries the idea of bringing one into fellowship, bringing them, welcoming them, welcoming them into the church, opening our home is another way this word could be translated. Taking them by the hand is another definition. Paul says the brother with the stronger faith should accept, do that very thing, the brother that is weaker in the faith. And in Romans 15:1, we'll get there in a little bit. He says, "Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves." Note here that the stronger are called to adjust and accept and even support and bear the weaker. Paul says, "Welcome them in. Love them well." But he also, at the same time, the same token, that same sentence, he gives a warning right there as well. You're not welcoming them in so that you can turn around and judge, pass judgment on their opinion. When he says, be careful that you're not doing this to pass judgments on them. So the second critical aspect of what we do in our hearts and our attitudes is we lay aside our desire to judge. Now, I think judging is something that comes extremely natural for all of us. We judge all the time. Almost everything that we do, we're passing little judgments, and some are trivial matters, and some are more significant matters. Um, but we do it all the time with almost anything and everything. We had some folks over the other night, and we were just talking about opinions about what to put on a street taco. One guy says, I love onions. The other guy says, I hate it. Onions shouldn't be on anything ever. Shouldn't even. And you're like, there's these differences of opinions on matters. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a car guy. And so I also, you know, I pass judgments all the time on cars. And we even make lists. Of, of things that we've passed judgment on, like, like the world's worst cars. You know, we have this cool little, you know, some guy's gone through or a gal, and they've recorded all of what they think are the worst cars ever made. Now, people spend a lot of hours and money making this car, and they're going to try it. So I'm going to put it in the catalog of the worst cars ever made. And, you know, my, my kids would tell you, 
we drive down, and I, I just have to be honest, I pass judgment on cars pretty regularly. Why would you drive that car? I don't know. But anyway, we, we, we judge things if we're honest all the time. And maybe you found yourself at, the, at a light behind a guy that, or gal that has a car with 20 bumper stickers on it. And now all of a sudden, we're not just judging the car, we're going inside the car, we're judging the person, right? Because we're seeing what they, what they believe sort of coming out through all the stickers. And if you're honest, you real quickly will go down either the road of, oh, I like this person. I see a lot of things that sort of jive with who I am, what I like. Or you might come to a very other decision real rapidly. Your judgment goes the other way. And so that's a reality that we, we just naturally judge things, right? And sometimes we bring that judgmental attitude into the church. Uh, and we begin to judge other believers on these secondary or tertiary issues or external matters uh, that we'll look at further as we dive into things like drinking and recognition of the days, fill in a blank. I mean, there's all kinds of different things we do, what to wear, what music is okay, what movies to watch, what political party you're affiliated with. Uh, fill in the blank. We'll, we'll make judgments on that individual based on their personal convictions in these matters. And Paul says this really is a two-way street with both of the individuals. The stronger judges the weaker, and actually, he says, can end up looking down upon them with contempt. That's that word, contempt. It's like you look down upon them. And vice versa, the weaker looks at the strong and says, are you kidding me? You're not going to recognize this particular day? I'm judging you. as you're, you're way off base. So it really goes both ways with the judgment. Uh, and he gets to the point where he just says, this isn't right to do. And then he has to give answers to us. Well, why is that wrong to go down that road? And when he begins to answer it, his first response is, because we are not the masters of our brothers and sisters. Each of us here as believers are a servant to one master. And that master is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. He is our master. He, Paul says, is in the position of judge not us. And when it comes to these issues of conscience and convictions on these tertiary issue, external issues, we must either stand or fall before our master. And if we're his, in verse 4, he says, we will stand. Uh, and he paints that picture very clearly. And we each must be fully convinced, he says, in our own hearts and minds, verse 5, on these matters. And then when we arrive at a conviction and can live with a clean conscience on the various issue at hand, fill in the blank. We do so, he says, in service to the Lord. In other words, if you decide to not eat, you're doing so as unto the Lord. And if you decide to eat, you are also doing that in obedience to the Lord. And notice what I love about this first section here is in both cases, both directions, both opinions, both decisions, ultimately, in serving the Lord, end up at the same unified result. And what is that? He says, they're giving thanks to the Lord in both cases. And he goes on in verse 7. He says, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, 
we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. The bottom line is that we belong to the Lord here. And everything we do is as unto service to the Lord because he has made us his. We eat or don't eat for the Lord. We observe the day or don't observe the day still serving the Lord. But what's interesting is if you pause and think about this just in our human rational you know, minds, we think, well, wait a second. It would seem that the one who eats is doing so for himself. The one who just eats haphazardly anything they want. Clearly, they're just eating anything for them. They're not serving. They're not doing this for the Lord. And while the one who doesn't eat, surely that sounds like something. Yeah, they're refraining from eating to serve the Lord, right? And same thing would go for the days. It would seem that the one who observes the day and recognizes, oh, this is this holy day, uh, they would say, oh, that's surely doing so for the Lord. Yet the one who doesn't observe the day, what would we say? Oh, you're just lazy. You don't, you're, not, you don't, you're not serving the Lord at all. You're just being a bum because you didn't want to make that day a special day, this new moon day or whatever you happen to fill in there. But Paul clearly is a saying otherwise in these verses. We do not live for ourselves. We do not die for ourselves. We live for the Lord, and we even die for the Lord. It says, we can't even die without still being under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate Lord and Master, and Paul makes that exceedingly clear. He goes on in verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother or you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? This word looking down upon them. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Paul here, very strong reminder as to whom we will have to give an account to. Every one of us. Will it be the brother who's holding me in contempt or judging my opinion or my, my decision on this matter? I don't have to answer to that brother or sister. But I will stand before my master. And I will have to give an account for the decision that I made regarding whatever the issue is. Now, I don't think what he's talking about here is judgment in terms of our salvation and going to hell. I, that's not what he's in view. But he's dealing with giving out of rewards like you can find over in, in 1 Corinthians. So that's what's in view here. So then he asks the question, so if that's the reality, if you, will be, if you have to give an account before the Lord, then why do you judge each other on these matters of conscience or hold each other in contempt and look down upon them? And then he just says, therefore, don't do this anymore. Let us not judge one another anymore. Now, up until this verse in the chapter, if you pause and you look at it, zoom back out a little, you realize everything that Paul said thus far is all matters of my heart. It's all my internal attitudes, my thoughts towards another, my, my judgment of another. 
all inside, what am I doing? Looking down, holding in contempt. Nothing really yet about actionable, like, okay, what about real actions that you would take? So he wants to make sure that first and foremost, we deal with our hearts. But then he goes on and he transitions. He sort of turns a corner to, to real world, sort of brass tacks. How do you live and actions you take in situations such as this where there's a difference of opinion on these matters? So he, he turns a corner here in the latter part of 13. He goes on, he says, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is good for you, uh, for, for you, a good thing, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, just a quick digression here off of this. When I, back my example, when I was helping these senior, the senior design class with the university, in my heart and mind, like I said, I had a, a, a certain level of contempt as things went on. Contempt is maybe not the right word, but the looking down upon is definitely the right view. You start to realize I sort of was beginning to look down upon these students. Like, they should have their act together better than this by now, you know? But I had to adjust, right? I had to change my thinking. I had to even adjust my very words, the things I, I said to them. And I even had to adjust the scope of work, like really what to go do based upon what I was seeing. Uh, and similarly for us, Paul says, he says, you're going to have to make some judgments and, and decisions here. And what's interesting is there's a term here that you would miss if you just read the NASB. He says, determine this in 13b, but rather determine this. Now, as you've heard me, as we've read this chapter, you've probably heard the word judge come up multiple times. Don't judge, don't judge, not for the purpose of passing judgment. The Greek word there, krino, is, is consistently translated to judge. And then they get to verse 13 and they, they actually translate it, determine this. And so you'd say, well, there is one thing, Paul says, that we are called to have a role of judgment in. And that comes when we're judging our own attitudes and actions. That's what you judge. Determine this, crino this, make a decision on this. What you do with your own heart and your own actions, especially as whether or not to act in a way that will put a stumbling block or an obstacle in front of a believer. Make sure that we've made a decision and, and a judgment not to go down that road. Stumbling block here is a word for being a trap or a snare for our brothers and sisters. Now, none of us should want to snare a brother or sister, but the reality is we have to be careful. Kevin mentioned some examples last week in his sermon about real-world examples of having people over for dinner or a Super Bowl party or things dealing where, where food and drink or certain behaviors and opinions might come to a head, right? Because there's, you, you, you don't know. And the reality is 
that's the, that's the issue here is you don't know the other person's conscience and their convictions on all these matters. The Lord does, but you don't. Uh, Paul says that he knows and is convinced that nothing is clean in itself, speaking of these issues such as eating, drinking, set aside, setting aside of days, but he says it is unclean if one thinks and believes it to be unclean. And that is the standard, he says, for requiring something to be clean. For him, it's to know and be convinced. To know and be convinced. The conscience within a person, within all of us, our individual consciences, they're difficult for man to control. You, you cannot command your conscience. You can't tell your con conscience, stop convicting me on that. Stop, you know, nagging me on that. It won't work. It'll just keep up what it's going to do. It must be convinced over time. And as you look at things, the conscience can be convinced. I think that's where the Holy Spirit can come in and work to teach and convince and work with our conscience so we don't have the nagging suspicions and doubts all the time. Um, but because I can't see into your conscience and I don't want to put a snare or a stumbling block, I must be careful. So when I come to these issues... There is, we need to recognize that we need to be sensitive because when we're not sensitive and we're not careful in our actions and we're not determined to not put stumbling blocks before a fellow believer, Paul says the reality is, guess what we may very well do? We may very well hurt a brother and ultimately we are no longer walking in love. And then he uses some very powerful language do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. You got to get this picture too. This one's a pretty solid and sound argument that, that, that Paul's, again, I, I love Paul. He's always, always on all cylinders when the Spirit's just flowing through him. But he says, if Christ was willing to die for this person, how can you be unwilling to practice a little self-denial on some food or drink for their sake. Do you get that? He said, Christ died for this person. He laid down everything he had for that person. And you're going to come along and just haphazardly, oh, I don't really care. Even if I put a stumbling block right in front of them, he says, time out. Let's, let's rethink that. Don't destroy with food him for whom Christ died. And there's a further underlying principle that he builds further as well, which is there's an aspect of the kingdom in this also. It's not about, the God's kingdom is not about these secondary or tertiary issues of food and drink and what to wear and all these things. Think of it this way. Here's a way to think of this. Uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States of America? Why, why is it that there are many people, even around the world, that would like, I just want to get to the United States. I want to, they're working towards their citizenship. They're, and, and the day they get their citizenship, it's like a big, you know, they're, they're super excited. They got their citizenship in the United States. And it's a goal of many a person. Is it so they can come over here and eat French fries and end up increasing their waistline and getting large? 
I, I don't think so, right? It has a much more profound reason, much deeper purpose than just saying, well, I, I just love it because I have the freedom to eat Applebee's or McDonald's. That's why I want to be a citizen of the United States. I, well, hold on a minute. It's hopefully a little deeper than just that, right? And so too with God's kingdom. It's much deeper than these tertiary issues. In Colossians 2.16, he says, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's saying this stuff isn't the core. This isn't what we should be about. What we should be about is focusing on Christ. These things are a mere shadow. Paul goes on in 19, back in Romans 14, verse 19, he said, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. This, I like this little, these few verses here because he moves us to a key instruction for what we are to be pursuing. Instead of the don't do that, don't do that, here's what you should be pursuing. Things which make for peace, things which make for the building up of one another. You might ask, well, what are these things that make for peace and building up for one another. I would contend these are things that edify spiritually, not the externals. Not, because if when we focus on the spiritual and the things of the spirit and the word, we build one another up. When we focus on these externals, what to eat, what to wear, what days of the week to recognize, and all these things, we run the risk, Paul says right here, of tearing down the very work of God instead of building it up. So our hearts should be toward the other person and not ourselves. That, my friends, is the motive of love, seeking the best interest of another. Here's another way to consider it. Your brother's righteousness or your sister's righteousness, your brother or sister's building up is more important then your personal liberties in food, drink, music, movies, holidays to celebrate, fill in the blank, that's more important, the consideration of the righteousness of your brother and sister and raising them up. He goes on, he says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. In matters of personal liberties on these sort of tertiary external issues like we're talking about, we are called right here by Paul to live with our own personal convictions before the Lord God. And he goes on, and he says, and it's a good thing when one can have and live with those convictions, right? and not have their conscience constantly condemning them for their conviction, but rather they can live and act with a clean conscience before God and man. And he says, happy is that person that can do that. 
But he also doesn't leave us without the warning that we have to be careful. Because guess what? The conscience is there. And guess what? There are times when it does issue a check in our spirit. As he would put here, a doubt that works into our mind. And Paul says, now, if that's the case, if you have that check and then you act and still do it, now that situation, you're no longer walking by faith. You've now walked into sin. Uh, And it wasn't the food or drink that was the sin, by the way. It was your choice to go against the conviction you had. And the Lord knows our hearts, our minds, our consciences. And he says, now that is not walking by faith. Uh, And now we are into a situation of sin. He goes on into chapter 15. And by the way, chapter breaks, if, if you've studied the scriptures, they're not in the original. Paul didn't say, okay, pause Let me catch my breath. I'm going to start a new subject matter. Let's go into chapter 15. He didn't do that. He's he's writing this down. He just keeps going. This is still in context. 15.1, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Those that are reproaching God the Father that fell on Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the other night, I was sitting around with some some of you guys, we were some folks over our house, and I was recollecting on a time from my youth when when I would go out and go pheasant hunting in Kansas. Um, And... You know, I, I grew up in Kansas City, and we would drive out into West Kansas, Western Kansas, out by Hayes and that general region, and we'd go hunt pheasant. Uh, and pheasant hunting, is, it's a lot of fun. Now, I was, at the time, uh, probably 10-ish, maybe, maybe a year or two younger. It was somewhere around that time I started going with my dad and my brothers and, our, and a friend, family friends, and we'd go out to hunt pheasant. Um, now, in Kansas, you can't carry a gun, until at the time back in, in the 80s, you couldn't carry a gun until uh, I think around 14, 15 years of age. You had to go through the hunter's you know, certificates, you know, you know, the class and whatnot. But I, nonetheless, I would go out there. I didn't carry a gun, but I just walk. I just walk out there, just be with, with my dad, my brother, and all the friends. And we go out there, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, but I, you also have to understand what it's like. So you go out here, and you get in a very large line, you, you spread out, you know, 50 feet or so apart, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet apart, depending on the size of the field. You just walk up to a massive field at times, sometimes they're half mile, you know, squares. And the, the goal is you walk into the fields and you, you're going to press forward and eventually you drive or flush a bird out. Uh, and hopefully you're a better shot than I am and you actually can hit the bird and you and down, down the bird. But anyway, that's the goal. The thing is you walk through all kinds of, of fields, okay? You, some are what are called CRP fields or conservation reserve program fields where the farmers have worked with the government and they're letting the fields go back to sort of natural prairie grass. There are other times you're walking through cut milo where the farmers had come through and they've, they've dealt with, cut the heads off the milo to gather the grain and harvest and then you're walking through stuff that's, you know, maybe this, you know, four, three or four feet tall. And birds love it during the day. They're there to eat. 
sometimes you're walking through ravines. Sometimes you're walking through gullies and ditches and things. Sometimes you're thickets trying to flush up quail or whatever. And uh, sometimes we would find ourselves in like super thick cane. I don't know. I don't even know. Like this, this huge cane stuff. And of course, they would send me like, like let's, 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 let's work it so we don't have to walk it. We'll send these younger guys into it. But the problem was, at the time, I was probably, when I started, only, you know, four foot something, maybe 65 pounds, give or take. I was a pretty small kid, you know? And you go out here, and you walk into a field, and you got boots on and everything else, and you're freezing because it's winter. And uh, you're, you head out, and you find yourself into some area that, you know, it's three or four feet over my head at the time, and you're, every, it's, you're doing everything you can just to just keep your legs, you know, you're having to step over massive amounts of material and, and foliage and debris, and you're trying to work your way through there. Uh, and, and all the while, you've got to keep track of where you are on the line, right? Because if you lose the line, I mean, you're in a dangerous position. If the line proceeds while you've gotten held up for some reason, you know, all it takes is a bird coming up behind the line. They turn around like this, and, you know, they may not see you, and boom, that's, you know, that's how the accidents happen with, with pheasant hunting and such. But so here I was out there, and I remember several times I would get myself caught up, and, and I was really struggling, you know, 10-year-old out here trying to get, and before I knew it, I lost track of the line, and I'm getting scared. I can't hear anybody because you're, all you're hearing is all the cane. You're trying to rip through stuff. You can't see anything. And eventually, you've got to stop and just cry out a little bit. Hold up, hold up. I, you know, hold up. I need some more time here. Uh, and fortunately, you know, my dad or my brother, who is especially attentive, knowing that their little brother or their son's out there with them, they would, they would hear me, you know, and then they would then yell down, like, hold up, you know, hold up. And then eventually the line would would stop, and then, and then if it was particularly bad, one of them might even need to come in and sort of, you know, help, help, you know, little Joel sort of get, get going, and, you know, the reality is, as I think back to that, is I'm certain there were guys in that line with us that are sitting there, when they hear the call to hold up, and they know why, and they're sitting there, and they're like, why do we have to wait? Why is Joel, little Joel out here hunting with us today? Why do I? And, and they're also thinking, the birds, the birds are, the, the, the birds are getting away from us now because we're having to pause. You know, they're all moving. And the reason I know that's going through their mind is because I've actually grown up and I've actually been on the other end where I'm sitting there again. I'm like, come on, let's keep moving. We've worked this hard this far. We got to keep going. So, you know, you get to this situation, but the reality is there are times where the stronger must bear up and help those that are weaker uh, so that we could all come back together, get back in a line, and unified walking forward again as we needed to be in a safe way. Um, so it's key to see here that the strong set aside their freedoms and their prerogatives to support the other, and, and, and so that the collective group can maintain unity. And I think Paul here, again, nails this. He says, the foremost example of this, if you want to get the best example of this, it's not Joel's hunting illustration at all. It's Jesus himself. Talk about the strong 
giving up their prerogatives to help the weak and bear them up, that is what Jesus did for us. In heaven, with his Father, with the glory given to his name, and his position of great honor amongst all the, all the angelic world looking, and he lays that aside to come down to bear up and to take up and help the weak. And Paul says he is the foremost example. Uh, and he goes, on, if he did that for us, we too should be quick to follow his example. Unfortunately, sometimes we dig in our heels, living out a life to please ourselves, potentially judging other believers, and even at times haphazardly putting traps right in their, in their way. And Paul's saying, you got to look back to the master. you got to look back to the overarching example of Jesus. Um, my friends, there are many things in our day and age right now today, many tertiary topics and external issues that are creating entrenchments and divisions amongst believers. Many of these, I believe, fit the category of issues, issues that are superficial to the kingdom of God. And there are many a, a teacher of men out there that's wanting to stir us up, stir up people's minds and their hearts, playing into their flesh, stoking these, these fires of division and controversy. But we have to be careful how we handle such things. We must watch our hearts and our attitudes towards one another. We must refrain from judging other believers' convictions on these secondary or tertiary matters, knowing that we are not the masters, and we all have to give an account before Christ. We have to be willing to set aside our own personal liberties at times, to ensure the well-being and the spiritual health of our fellow believers that may not have the strength of liberty that we have. We must make a determined effort. We must make a judgment and, and decide that we are not going to place stumbling blocks or snares before a weaker brother's path in trapping them and in thus tearing down God's handiwork. And we must decide to walk with the overarching principle of love, just like our, our Savior Jesus Christ did, seeking the betterment of others. And Paul says that when we act in this way, we do so with an overarching goal, and that goal is to bring glory to God the Father, and get this, to bring true unity and harmony in his church. Because he says in Romans 15, 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of of God. This, my friends, is a high calling. This is a high goal. And I would claim that this goal is impossible without the love that can only come when walking by the Spirit. If we walk by the flesh, we're going to seek to please our own desires, 
not worried or sensitive about the, our fellow believers. When we walk by the Spirit, He gives us the right direction and the right heart as we walk, just as our King did, as, a, as an arch example. If He didn't place His own wishes ahead of the needs of others, then how can we? His weak, here we are, weak servants, thinking that our own desires should come first. He said, that's the wrong picture here. We need to be able to set that aside. And then here where he calls out that may he give us this perseverance and encouragement so that we would have the same mind. I pray that our church right here, Christ Community Church, and that your families and that your marriages take these same principles, these same scriptures to bring perseverance into those relationships, that they'll stand the test of time because we will stand before the Lord and every man's works will be tested by fire. And only those that pass that test will have anything worth getting a reward for. And guess what that is? You and I, our fellow believers, fellow people that are, that are eternal beings that will live forever. Isn't it worth setting some of these other secondary things aside? I think it is. And my son, you know, I, I, after the first service, he paused, Dad, but you didn't talk about the things you can judge. There's got to be some things. There are. There are. There's, there's plenty in the scriptures that we can make biblical determinations on, right? But what he's dealing with here are these issues of, of, that we see in our society at times, in our own families. Do you celebrate Halloween? Do you have a Christmas tree? Are you willing to listen to rock and roll? Do you think wine is evil? I mean, do you feel those are the things he's talking principles in our conscience that we need to be able to say, look, those are not worth dividing over and definitely not worth tearing down God's work over. We need to walk in love when it comes to those issues. So I'm going to close us in prayer on this. Uh, Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for your word. We're thankful that you moved Paul and that he was firing on all cylinders, not because it was him, but because your spirit was flowing through him, writing down these incredible truths. Even though that was in the first century, we can fast forward to 2021 and say, wow, how applicable is this? That's because it's the living and active word of God. And it'll never die. It'll always go out and achieve what you want from it. And your words will stand forever. And this issue right here that we're reading about is still valid today. That we need to watch our hearts and our minds and take these attitudes. And we need to determine not to put a stumbling block in front of one another. And to let go of these things so that we can get unity. And, and ultimately, Lord, Father, to give you glory. To give you glory and honor that you are due. We are so thankful that you gave us Jesus, our Savior, that he demonstrated these very con concepts by coming to us so that now we can look at him and say, well, I want to walk like that. I want to be a disciple of him. I want to live like him. I want to think like him. I want to do what he did. And he was the example. Help us to set our, mind, our eyes on him and our minds on him that you can guide us and may you fill us with your spirit, empower us to do so. And may you help Christ Community Church to walk with perseverance and encouragement in this so that we may with one voice and one accord, Father, 
turn our hearts and our eyes towards you and give you praise and glory and not be divided anymore over these secondary things, but have one heart to serve and follow you as our king. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.